Good morning, I'm Barb Boylan, and as always, it's an honor to be able to read scripture with you today. We're in the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, we love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of El Shaddai. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn, if you don't know me, and I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and I get to open God's word for you this morning. So one of the most famous movies in history, The Empire Strikes Back, the second in sequence of the Star Wars films, also contains one of film's most famous lines. It is spoken by Han Solo, who is played by Harrison Ford, just as he is about to be frozen in carbonite by Darth Vader and handed over to Boba Fett, the bounty hunter. Who's familiar with that story? <laughs> All right, nerds, I love you. Um, in that scene, you'll also know that Princess Leia, played by Carrie Fisher, tells Han for the first time that she loves him. And who knows how Han Solo responds to her. In return to Leia saying, I love you, Han glibly replies, I know. I know. Actually, the script of The Empire Strikes Back called for Han to say, I love you too. But Harrison Ford decided that he was going to improvise with a line that he thought better suited the character of Han Solo. And that scene remains iconic because of the, what I would call, wise decision that he made for the film. Do you know, this is such an iconic line and such an iconic movie, that there are people who now use that very exchange of I love you and I know as inspiration for their weddings. My cousin used it as an inspiration for his wedding. It shows up on invitations, it shows up on cake toppers, and it sometimes shows up in the vows that they take. It is not the most romantic thing in the world, so good for those ladies who are willing to do that. But for the Star Wars nerds across the globe, this exchange seems to work because for them, it speaks of love, even if their understanding of love is somewhat misguided and a tad incomplete. You might be surprised to know this, but Sheila and I were a bit more traditional at our wedding in spite of me. 
It didn't actually even occur to me to ask if we could work in the Han Solo and Princess Leia thing in our wedding. So like many others, we had 1 Corinthians 13 read at our wedding, which is common and was incredibly perfect for us. And though it took me a little bit to realize it as I thought about the verse, 1 Corinthians 13 is in fact talking about love. It certainly is talking about love. But in a much more significant way, the beauty of those verses is found in the fact that they are also talking about God himself. It isn't just talking about love, but those verses are also talking about God himself. I think most of us are familiar with these five verses from 1 Corinthians 13. Who has been to a wedding where that verse has been read? So love is patient, love is kind, right? If you're not familiar. But have you ever looked at these verses or listened to these verses with the understanding that we cannot define or understand love without God? We cannot understand love without God. And to illustrate this point, let me ask you to listen to these five verses as I read them for you, but pay specific attention to the noun changes that I make. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. So if you didn't catch it in reading 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8, these wedding verses that we are all so familiar with, I replaced every instance of the word love with the name God. And in so doing, what we see and hear is the essence of God and the defining characteristics of love because according to today's passage, God is love. Unlike any other part of God's creation, human beings were uniquely created with the desire and the capacity for love. It makes sense because our triune God exists inside a love relationship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All relating to and fellowshipping with one another in love. And it is within the confines of personal relationship that love exists and expresses itself. You and I, as people created in God's image, were created to love. That's why there are so many movies and so many songs and books and poems about it. And friends, the love that we were created to express and to enjoy has two primary objects, God and one another. Listen again to verses 7 and 8 of 1 John chapter 4 as Barb read it for us. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, in John saying God is love, he is not making an all-encompassing or even abstract statement about God. God certainly is love, but in this same letter, John also says that God is light. He also says that God is life. The rest of scripture says that God is spirit, that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is merciful, and that he is gracious. It says that he is wisdom, that he is justice, that he is power and goodness, and that he is truth. And none of those things are human achievements. And not one of them exists outside of God. Instead, each one finds its fullness and its reality in God. Love permeates all of who God is and everything he does. Meaning, whatever it is that God does, even if you and I don't like it, and even if you and I do not understand it, love is behind it. Whatever it is that God does, even if we don't like it, and even if we don't understand it, we must understand that love is what's behind it. That is what the end of verse 8 is getting at. And without understanding what love is, or better yet, who love is, and without the love of God flowing to us and flowing through us, we are simply unable to receive love from God and others. We are unable to feel love from God and from others, and we are unable to show love to God and others in the way that he intended. It must come from him. Now, unfortunately, we only have one word for love in the English language, and it gets thrown around very, very loosely, right? We live in a world, as Jonathan mentioned last week, where we can say that we love brats, and we love our spouses, and we love the Green Bay Packers, and we also love God. Using that same word in each instance, which is quite confusing and also terribly unfortunate, but in the Greek language, as you may already know, the language of the New Testament, there are four words for love. One means brotherly love. One means romantic love. One means familial love. And the other, the word that is used in our passage today, means God's love. And that is the word agape. And it is that word, agape, that is used when describing the love that God has for us. And it is the kind of love that we as Christians are to have for others. Agape is a love of commitment. It is a love of choice and of sacrifice. It is a promise without condition, a covenant, if you will. That's what makes marriage so special and so unique. Agape is not dependent upon attraction or benefit or circumstance. Rather, agape exists in spite of those things. Now, does that sound like the kind of love that the world offers? 
A love of commitment, of choice, of sacrifice without condition. No attraction, no benefit, and circumstance is going to change it? Of course not. But that is the kind of love that God has set upon you and I. And it is that kind of love that we are to reciprocate unto him and then share with others. Now, the literal Greek translation of the first part of verse 7 says, Beloved ones, we may love. Beloved ones, we may love. Now, what I love about that translation is how it highlights where love begins and how it works itself out. It doesn't say, love others if you want to be loved, because we are not the starting point. Rather, John makes clear that we are already loved. That's what beloved means. And in being beloved, we are now free to love others. That is love's natural flow from God to us and then to others. Now, of course, what is critical in all of this is a good and a proper understanding of what the Bible means when it speaks of love, because our ability to recognize the love of God for us and in us is connected to our assurance of knowing God and being born of God. Isn't that what verse 7 is saying? That unless we understand the love of God, we'll have no assurance that we know God or have been born of him? My friends, we, we live in a world constantly trying to redefine love for its own purposes. And in doing so, making love something that it is not. The fallout of what may be a misunderstanding of love at best, or an arrogant endeavor to redefine love at worst, is growing increasingly evident in our culture. Modern phrases like love wins, or love is love, or love has no gender, were created to convince people that God's expression of perfect love reflected in part in the good design of his creation mandate of male and female, of husband and wife, is untrue, antiquated, and unimportant. That's why those phrases exist to tell us that none of those things are real. None of those things matter. What is most important, the world would tell you, is what you feel. Who you want to be. And who you want to be with. And no one, including God, can say otherwise. But none of that, my friends, is love as God declares it and demonstrates it, either in thought or word, or deed. That is not love. My friends, even, even the generic accusations that we will often put on God or others, such as, well, that's not a very loving thing to say or do. Who's heard that? Who's used that? That doesn't seem very loving to say. That doesn't seem like a very loving thing to do. Would a loving God do... Even making general accusations like that require context and a mutually agreed upon understanding of what it means to love or we can't be confident that we are talking about the same thing. When someone makes accusations like that, the first question we ought to ask is, what do you mean by love? 
Because my friends, you and I do not get to define love. Nor do we get to define God by our definition of love. Instead, it is God who tells us who he is and what love is as expressed through his character. And then we think, speak, and act accordingly. So, presuming that we cannot know what love is apart from God, how does our world's definition and view of love line up with what God says and demonstrates? Fortunately, we have been given the ultimate picture and the most accurate definition of love in the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 13, speaking of how he would die, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And John said something similar in this same letter just one chapter earlier. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 reads, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So my friends, we see love in its most perfect form through God the Father giving and sending his only son. And God the Son taking upon himself the full judgment and the wrath of God the Father that we deserved for our sins, satisfying his holy and just demands. That's what the word propitiation in verse 10 is talking about. God the Son taking upon himself our judgment and the full wrath of God, satisfying God the Father's holy and just demands. That's propitiation. And that is love. So let me ask you then, does your understanding and definition of love line up with what we see in the cross of Christ? Is that how you define love? Or does it more closely resemble the world where it's more of a fairy tale romance novel that centers around you and your feelings making you feel nothing but good? I mean, there are certainly other Greek words that more closely reflect those romantic notions, but that's not what John is talking about here when he speaks of God's love. When the Bible speaks of God's love, it is depicted in and through the innocent dying on behalf of the guilty. Sacrifice and service even unto those who mistreat you. That's what the Bible means when it talks of God's love. Charles Spurgeon said of these verses that we're looking at today, if there was to be reconciliation between God and man, it is man who ought to have sent to God. The offender ought to be the first to apply for forgiveness. The weaker should apply to the greater for help. But here is love, 
that God sent. He was the first to send an embassy of peace. Who among us would think of giving up his son to die for his enemy, for one who never did him a service but treated him ungratefully and went on perversely hardening his neck? I dare say no man could do it. Friends, I think there is one good reason that the world does not understand God's greatest gesture of love in sending his only son, Jesus Christ. And that reason is that because love, as the world defines it, often ignores the reality of sin and brokenness. It ignores the reality of sin and brokenness because addressing a person's sin and brokenness might make a person feel bad. And if someone feels bad, it can't be love, right? Isn't that what the world tells us? But my friends, the cross of Christ, God's most significant declaration of love, does not separate the truth of God from the grace of God. It does not separate the truth of God from the grace of God, even if that truth says that what a person says and what a person does and who they are is evil. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says of love, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It says that just as much as it says that love is kind. Tim Keller said it this way, the cross of Christ says that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, and yet so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That, my friends, is the cross. That, my friends, is love. Love, as Scripture defines and demonstrates it, is primarily expressed in action, born of a willingness to serve someone else's best interest at your own expense, meaning love acts before it ever feels. And while the warm feelings associated with love can be and are a wonderful thing, they cannot be the primary way by which we gauge love's existence. They cannot be the primary way by which we gauge love's expression or its authenticity. Simply because, and we know this, our feelings can and do lie to us. But God, who is love, never lies to us. He never lies to us. So only through returning again and again to the cross will our understanding and expression of love reflect that of God's. According to verse 10 on the cross, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, but the love of God in the cross of Christ is not limited to the forgiveness of our sins or the satisfaction of God's wrath, as incredible as those gifts are. According to verse 9, if you read it, the love of God is also seen in this, that we would live through him. That we would live through him. And what makes that aspect of God's love so incredible is that apart from the life of God in us, we would stand fully forgiven and reconciled to God, but still be spiritually dead. 
So that's not great. But in God's love, the cross of Christ put to death what killed us, which is sin, so that through the resurrection of Christ, we would have new life and never die again. My friends, the cross took away what killed us, and the empty tomb restored to us what we needed most. The life of God himself in us, both now and forever. That's what the resurrection and the empty tomb gave to us. That is what the love of God gave to us. How great and glorious is the love of God in Christ. So then, how are we to respond to such love according to God's word? Well, through loving God and through loving others. Those are the great commands that we have been given over and over and over and over again in Scripture. And our love for God must drive everything that we do as Christians. And as our love for God increases, so too will our desire to be with him and to know him and obey him and glorify him. And when we love God with all that we are because he first loved us with all that he is, something else happens. Our love for others increases. You're not going to love others well if you don't first understand what it means to be perfectly loved by him. Of all the commands that God has given, each one falls within two categories, loving God and loving others. In Mark 12, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he referenced Deuteronomy 6, known as the Shema, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But he also referenced Leviticus 19, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Finishing Mark 12 by saying, there is no other commandment greater than these. Love God with all you are, and love your neighbor as you already love yourself. That is the implication that Jesus made in these commands. Love God with all you are, and love others as you already love yourself. Now to be clear, Jesus is not criticizing people for loving themselves. On the contrary, he expects that we will. After all, we are uniquely made in God's image. No other piece of creation can say that. He calls us the apple of his eye and his beloved. And more than all of that, he came to suffer and to die in our place so that we could be children of God and be with him and love him forever. But when we love ourselves more than we love God, and more than we love others, self-love becomes sinful. Loving ourselves more than we love God and others is what lies underneath arrogance and pride, insecurity, and a lack of self-worth. We are obsessed with ourselves. But as Christians, we are not called to think less of ourselves in some masochistic way. Rather, 
we are called to think of ourselves less. Not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And in order to do that, we first have to concern ourselves with the people that God has surrounded us with, even, by the way, the people that we may not like. Recognizing that God has put everyone that is in our life there for a reason. The people in our work, in our schools, our neighborhoods, our church, and wherever else we go, my friends, are all our neighbors, not just those who live adjacent to us. And all of those people have physical, emotional, and spiritual lives and needs. And all of them have eternity in front of them, an eternity either with God or separated from God. So the reason that you know and live near the people that you do is that God wants to show his love and his presence to them through you for his glory. That's why they're there. Secondarily, in order to love our neighbors, we need to get to know them and ask them how they're doing. It's difficult to love someone you don't know. Have them over to your house for beverages. You pick the beverage. Go out to coffee or lunch or dinner together. And as they begin to share in time who they are along with their physical, emotional, and spiritual concerns, ask God how he might have you Meet those needs with what he has given to you because that's why you have what you have. And then pray for them because you can always do that. And if it's possible, and it usually is, you can pray with them right then and there. If someone expresses a concern, if someone expresses to you a great joy in their life, what does it look like for you to be able to pray for them right then and right there. Not to say, I will pray for you, but to say, can we pray now? But above all of those things, when you are together, look for opportunities to tell them about Jesus, even as you love them like Jesus, because there is no more loving thing to do. Give them the reason for the hope that you have how Christ saved you from sin and death and how he gave you eternal life. It's your story. Who can argue with that? And then trust God to do the rest. He's not expecting you to save anyone or to change anyone or to have every argument perfectly in place. God does that work. You and I can speak in love, we can act in love, but only God can save and transform in love. So feel the freedom in that. Finishing up with verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So my friends, it is the life of God in us that makes the love of God in and through us possible. So if you're wondering, how am I going to love God this way? 
How am I going to love others this way? Well, you're not. But the life of God in and through you is. And he has not only made that possible, but according to this verse, he has made it perfect. That that love can be perfect, expressed one to another. Love, which begins with God and was made manifest in Jesus, now finds its perfection in us, his people. That's what this verse is saying. And that is the summation of today's passage, the whole passage. Love, which begins with God and was made manifest in Jesus, now finds its perfection in we, his people. Now, the word perfect just in case there's any confusion that we see in verse 12, does not mean without defect. Rather, what it means is complete or whole, meaning that the love that God gives and produces in us cannot be added to or improved upon. That's what the word perfect means. And so Disciples Church It is God's perfect love that we are all looking for in every relationship that we enter into. That's what you're chasing. And it is God's perfect love that we are crying at in books and in movies and singing about in cars. Oh, that love could be like this, cries your soul. And it is. You're just looking for it in the wrong places. My friends, the kind of love that you and I are looking for and that this world is looking for cannot be found outside of a relationship with Christ and his indwelling spirit, period. The God that we worship is spirit, which means, as verse 12 talks about, that he is unseen in a physical sense. But according to verse 12, he can be, and he is seen how? In and through the love that he gives to us in Christ and through the love that he reflects onto us and unto others. In John 13, 35, what did Jesus say? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's how people are going to know him through the way that we love one another. My friends, love, this is incredible to consider. Love is the primary way that God now discloses himself to those who cannot and have not seen him. Love is the primary way that God now discloses himself to those who cannot and have not seen him. And just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, we as Christ's disciples are to reflect the light of God and the life of God and the love of God to a lost, lonely, and dying world. What credit does the moon get for the light that it reflects? What work is it doing in reflecting that light? And so it is with you and I who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. And because God does indwell and abide in those who love and follow his Son, we can ask God and we can trust God to do only what he can do in and through us. So today, 
if you find yourself thinking, I'm not very good at loving God or those that he has put around me. Or even worse, if you're thinking, I'm not really interested in loving God or other people like that. All is not lost. All is not lost. Because God, in his grace and by his spirit, has revealed that truth to you. To the degree that you recognize your deficiencies, to the degree that you recognize that you're not loving God and other people very well, God, by his spirit, has revealed that truth to you. And he has not done so to make you feel guilty or to make you feel bad, but to turn you away from those sins and turn you towards him. To turn you towards him who saves the lost, who renews and transforms the found, and who gives love to the loveless. So to the degree that you find yourself struggling to love God as you ought, or struggling to love the people who love you, or really struggling to love the people that you don't like, God calls you, and he calls me, to fix our eyes on the cross where love in its truest and purest form is found. We cannot find it in the world. We cannot find it in and of ourselves. We see it in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ where the only begotten Son of God the Father suffered and died for you. Do you know when? While you were his enemy. That's when God's love came to you. When you were his enemy. When you were the worst you could have been. When you were as dead as you could have been. God in love gave his son to suffer and die for you. Love knows no greater expression. And when you know that you're loved like that, it makes it much easier to love others. And then, my friends, having gazed upon the cross and God's perfect love expressed in it, we can trust God by his spirit to love and forgive all others through us just as he first did for us. We can trust God to love through us just as he first did for us. Saying unto him, God, apart from you, I have no love in me. But in the cross of Jesus, I can see and know perfect love. By your spirit abiding in me and your love flowing to and through me, love finds its completion. So I'm asking you to live through me and love through me today and always. For you, God, are love. My friends, may that be our heart's desire and our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as has often been said, you created us in your image and we have spent our lives sinfully trying to return the favor, seeing ourselves as ultimate, seeing ourselves as those who define good and evil, and as the final arbiters of love. And in so doing, we mock the gift of your son and his cross, and we are sorry. Thank you, God, that you first loved us and have chosen to make us instruments and vessels of your perfect love. Only through the faith that you have given us, having made us regenerate new creations in Christ, can the love of God flow to and through us. So would you help us to respond to you and others with the same love that you have given to us in grace? 
Amazing love, Lord, how can it be that you, our King, would die for us? Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, for eternal life through you, for the indwelling of your spirit, and for your impending return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until you do, may others know you by how we love you and one another. For your glory and in your name we pray. Amen.